This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, the peace message in the original Star Trek television series. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes, knowing that we're not going to kill today. The 1960s science fiction series offered many chances to reflect on the threat of war, the hope of peace, the power of friendship, and the possibilities of tolerance. Today we'll talk with a Star Trek screenwriter, a professor who teaches the philosophy of Star Trek, and original cast member Nichelle Nichols. Gene Roddenberry, I said I know what you are doing with your scripts. You are making people's minds think. And he put his finger to his lips and said, shh, front office hasn't figured that out yet. <laughs> That's all today on Peace Talks Radio. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to reduce conflict nonviolently with others in our homes, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and I stand before the group to say that I am a trekker. That's Trekker, not Trekkie. Trekker is the preferred name for the devoted fan of the Star Trek TV series. Space, a final frontier. It can be someone who's into any of the different Star Trek series, but the fan base was born with the original 1960s TV series, Star Trek. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. My experience of watching Star Trek since 2003, when we started doing our Peace Talks radio series, has actually changed, because I began to notice how the adventures of Captain Kirk, Vulcan First Officer Spock, Dr. McCoy, and the rest of the crew of the Starship Enterprise regularly mused on the big issues, so many of the issues that we like to explore on our program. Peace and war. Well, there it is, war. We didn't want it, but we've got it. Curious how often you humans manage to obtain that which you do not want. Tolerance and bigotry. Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, mister. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir. Freedom and justice. But does our involvement here also constitute a violation of the prime directive? We merely showed them the meaning of what they were fighting for. Liberty and freedom have to be more than just words. Mercy and compassion. No. No, I won't kill you. Maybe you thought you were protecting yourself when you attacked the outpost. Not to suggest that there weren't battles with phasers and photon torpedoes and likely a hand-to-hand fight or two in almost every episode. But the careful consideration of whether the fighting was necessary in the first place was often right there in the script. Are you a freighter, aren't you? I will not allow you to lecture me. Then why do you stop me? With the May 2009 Star Trek movie release, that acts as something of a prequel to the original series, 
telling how the Enterprise crew came together in the first place. I thought now's the time to explore what Star Trek actually has to offer those of us who are interested in peacemaking. Right now we have two guests on the line with us to talk with us about the peace lessons in Star Trek. Due to scheduling conflicts, they couldn't be on the line with us at the same time, so we'll be blending their responses as we go so you can hear from both of them in one stream of discussion. From Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana, we have Dr. Judith Barrett, Ph.D., Professor of Philosophy. She teaches ethics courses and a course on the philosophy of Star Trek. With Ed Robertson, she is the co-author of The Ethics of Star Trek, a book released in 2000 from HarperCollins. And with us from Northridge, California, is David Gerald, a longtime science fiction writer who wrote one of Star Trek's most popular episodes, The Trouble with Tribbles. He's also the author of the book The World of Star Trek, first published in 1973 and updated again in 1984. Also later, we'll talk with one of the original cast members, Nichelle Nichols, who played communication specialist Lieutenant Uhura. David Gerald, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I feel like I can presume that most of our listeners know at least something about Star Trek, since you can make the case that Star Trek is one of the most popular and successful ongoing franchises in entertainment history. But let's recap the premise briefly. In the Star Trek original series, it's the 23rd century, and Earth people have survived to travel into deep space, and they find there's actually lots of life and excitement going on out there. According to the world of Star Trek created by TV producer and writer Gene Roddenberry, Earth survived more turmoil in the late 20th and 21st centuries, but eventually got its act together, in short. So, David Gerald, uh, what's really suggested to viewers when the Star Trek story begins? Well, from the very beginning, uh, this is a great question, and and people have always asked, why is Star Trek so popular? And I've always felt that the reason it's popular is because it portrays a future that works for all of us, with no one left out. And everybody's included, uh, black and white, brown and red, uh, old and young. Uh, there's a place for everybody. There's a lot of work to do. Uh, we can't afford to waste anyone. And Gene Roddenberry himself said that. And the way I've always phrased it is that space isn't the final frontier. The final frontier is the human soul. Space is where we're going to meet the challenge. But when Gene would start talking about, uh, I, I think his greatest skill, we called him the silver tongue devil, is that he could inspire an audience. So when Gene started talking about uh, his visions, you were inspired as a writer to want to do your very best. I, I was not the only writer who felt that way. You could see it on people's faces when they came into the show for an opportunity to write on the show that this was a very special privilege. Uh, Gene sold the show to NBC as Wagon Train to the Stars, and they thought they were just getting an adventure series that took place in space. But Gene Roddenberry and Gene L. Coon, especially Gene L. Coon, uh, recognized immediately that they could tell stories that were very pertinent moral allegories about life in the 20th century. And uh, so you see there were stories, anti-drug stories, anti-war stories, stories about the insanity of mutual assured destruction, uh, stories about the Cold War. Uh, There were stories that were about Vietnam, stories about uh, uh, the arrogance of being human and thinking we have the right to do things uh, in in other worlds. There was a lot of uh, questioning of who are we and and what is our role in the universe in that series. And I think that was one of the things that 
uh, struck people the strongest that it was Star Trek was going places in in its ideas, in its storytelling that no other show at the time was even attempting. Yes, and many of the episodes presented fairly sophisticated discourse on war and peace. And I want to start by playing some dialogue from an episode called A Private Little War. Uh, One of my favorites. In short, in this episode, Kirk is contemplating arming the hill people, indigenous inhabitants of this once peaceful planet, so they can hold their own against another faction of inhabitants on the planet, the villagers, who've been armed with rifles by the Federation adversaries in that original series, the Klingons. In this scene, Kirk is training the hill people on the use of old-style flintlock rifles. When Dr. McCoy appears, concerned. William Shatner playing Kirk and DeForest Kelly as Bones McCoy. Hold your breath and squeeze the trigger gently. Very, very, very. Jim, I want to talk to you. Not here, Bones. In the cave. Yutan, your turn. Do I have to say it? It's not bad enough there's already one serpent in Eden teaching one side about gunpowder. You're going to make sure they all know about it. Exactly. Each side receives the same knowledge and the same type of firearm. Have you gone out of your mind? Yes, maybe you have. Bones, the normal development of this planet was a status quo between the hill people and the villagers. The Klingons changed that with the flintlocks. If this planet is to develop in the way it should, we must equalize both sides again. Jim, that means you're condemning this whole planet to a war that may never end. It could go on for year after year, massacre after massacre. All right, Doctor. All right, all right, say I'm wrong, say I'm drunk. What is your sober sensible solution to all this i don't have a solution but furnishing them firearms is certainly not the answer bones do you remember the 20th century brush wars on the asian continent two giant powers involved much like the klingons and ourselves neither side felt that they could pull out yes i remember it went on bloody year after bloody year well what would you have suggested that one side arm its friends with an overpowering weapon Mankind would never have lived to travel space if they had. No. The only solution is what happened back then. Balance of power. And if the Klingons give their side even more? Then we arm our side with exactly that much more. A balance of power. The trickiest... Most difficult, dirtiest game of them all, but the only one that preserves both sides. And what about your friend Tyree? Will he understand this balance of power? Since Tyree won't fight, he will be one of the first to die. In this particular episode, Kirk is justifying... Uh, the Vietnam War, and you know, remember that's 1966, 1967. Kirk is justifying the Vietnam War by saying that we need to preserve the balance of power. He recognizes that it's an ugly argument, but there is no other argument. There is no other solution. He says so. Um, it, it raises issues of responsibility, the responsibilities of a superpower. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I think that a superpower should use its power to stop wars, not foment them, and certainly not to create them. 
I think Star Trek is asking, finally asking, in that episode for me, Star Trek is finally asking the question, how do we use our power to stop wars? And the answer Kirk comes up with, to my mind, is is still the wrong answer, but it's the only answer he knows. It's extraordinary still that even the peace argument gets an eloquent airing, it seems to me, for that time. Um, and I wonder, too, because we recently did a program about physicians for social responsibility starting in the early 60s, whether the, the doctor ends up sort of playing that role that physicians for social responsibility did in the anti-war debate of the time. Uh, Dr. McCoy is my favorite character in the entire series and, and, and possibly one of my favorite characters in all of science fiction because he comes from the heart. He speaks from a position of respect for what it means to be a human being. While Kirk and Spock are always considering uh, the logic, the action, uh, and even the consequences, McCoy is reminding them constantly people are going to get hurt by this. And I think this is important to remember. Anybody who's in a position of any authority has to remember every decision you make, people are going to be inconvenienced, hurt, sometimes even killed by the quality of the decisions you make. And I think it's important for McCoy to constantly speak up and remind all of us that these decisions cannot be made in a vacuum. They're made in a context of real people with real lives. Yes, the the law of unintended consequences. Oh, yeah. And, And it's interesting to note, too, that as I watched some of these episodes, when force was applied or advocated for, in the closing moments of many of these episodes, there was more than a hint of uncertainty in the solution. And I want to play the final moments of this episode we excerpted, A mm-hmm. Private Little War, because in the end, both sides of that planet did do battle with the flintlocks, and after an ugly fight scene wherein the once peaceful hill people learned to kill, they ask Kirk for even more rifles. Kirk here. Spock, Captain. I trust all has gone well. So Spock, ask Scotty how long it would take him to reproduce a hundred flintlocks. I didn't get that exactly, Captain. A hundred? What? A hundred... serpents. Serpents for the Garden of Eden. We're very tired, Mr. Spark. Beam us up home. So Kirk's sigh and expression leave a world of doubt about the decision to arm the Hill people. Do you think that was a conscious decision to make the moral of some of the stories sometimes murky? Oh, I'm certain it was. Gene, was, Gene Roddenberry was never comfortable with war, uh, having fought in war. I think it's very, very intentional that Kirk would have his uh, uh, doubts about the wisdom of his own decisions. David, I know most fans know this, but let's talk about other plot points reflecting the 1960s geopolitical scene. Was the rivalry between the Klingons and the Federation of Planets meant to mirror the Soviet Union and the United States in the mid-60s? Absolutely. And in fact, um, I mean, the Cold War was a very, very uh, intense uh, uh, national paranoia. Uh, You couldn't escape it. It was everywhere. While we never said, oh, the Klingons represent the Russians in the Cold War, we knew that the Klingons were our Cold War, particularly after the the first episode with them, which was Errand of Mercy, and ends with a peace treaty. Uh, and that's another episode where Kirk confronts the arrogance of of the balance of power. 
so what we were left with after that was an enforced Cold War, where we weren't never going to quite get into outright open hostilities with the Klingons, but there would be skirmishing everywhere we went. That's what we had with the Russians in the 60s was a policy called Mutual Assured Destruction, MAD for short, and a perfect acronym, MAD, um, because the idea was uh, you destroy us, we destroy you, and the whole world is dead. Uh, but somehow it kept the Cold War from erupting into a hot war. We'll listen to a clip from that episode that makes clear the Cold War connection when we return. Later in the program, actress Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura in the original series of Star Trek. And in a moment, more from David Gerald, author of The World of Star Trek, and philosophy professor Dr. Judith Barrett. We're listening for the Peace Lessons in Star Trek today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, back in a minute. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we're reflecting on the classic 1960s science fiction television series Star Trek and highlighting the peace, tolerance, freedom, friendship, and justice themes that were often explored in those episodes, seen by likely billions of people around the world by now. Before the break, we were talking with David Gerald, who wrote the popular Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, and also the book, The World of Star Trek. We were talking about an episode called Errand of Mercy in Star Trek's first season, which presented the Federation, represented by Captain James Kirk and the Enterprise crew, versus the Klingon Empire, as a metaphor for the United States versus the Soviet Union in the Cold War in the late 1960s. In the episode, Kirk addresses the seemingly unconcerned Organians who occupy a strategically located planet that the Klingons are also after. Gentlemen, I have seen what the Klingons do to planets like yours. They are organized into vast slave labor camps. No freedoms whatsoever. Your goods will be confiscated. Hostages taken and killed. Your leaders confined. Captain, we see that your concern is genuine. We are moved. But again, we assure you that we are in absolutely no danger. You keep insisting that there's no danger. I keep assuring you that there is. Would you mind telling me? It is our way of life, Captain. That's the first thing that would be lost. Excuse me, gentlemen. I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. What the Organians don't reveal until much later, so that I presume we can have an hour-long episode, is that they are super-powerful, pure-energy beings who can and do force the Klingons and the Federation into a truce by making all of their weapons too hot to touch. 
And here's the climactic scene. Unless both sides agree to an immediate cessation of hostilities, all your armed forces, wherever they may be, will be immediately immobilized. We have legitimate grievances against the Klingons. They've invaded our territory, killed our citizens. They're openly aggressive. They've boasted that they'll take over half the galaxy. And why not? We're the stronger. You've tried to hem us in, cut off vital supplies, strangle our trade. You've been asking for a war. You're the ones who issued the ultimatum to withdraw from the disputed area. They're not disputed. They're clearly ours. And now you step in with some kind of trick. It is no trick, Commander. We have simply put an end to your war. All your military forces, wherever they are, are now completely paralyzed. You're meddling in things that are none of your business. Even if you have some power that we don't understand, you have no right to dictate to our Federation or our Empire how to handle their interstellar relations. We have the right to wage war, Captain, to kill millions of innocent people, to destroy life on a planetary scale, that what you're defending. Well, no one wants war. But there are proper channels. People have a right to handle their own affairs. Eventually, we will. Oh, eventually you will have peace. But only after millions of people have died. It is true that in the future, you and the Klingons will become fast friends. You will work together. Never. Your emotions are most discordant. We do not wish to seem inhospitable, but gentlemen, you must leave. Yes, please leave us. Let me turn to another episode where peace and war were debated with some eloquence. Dr. Judy Barrett uh, analyzed it in her book, The Ethics of Star Trek. It's the Savage Curtain in which an alien force interested in testing whether good or evil is more powerful creates kind of an evil dream team that includes Genghis Khan, a Colonel Green who's said to be a genocidal warmonger from Earth's 21st century, an evil Klingon and another evildoer from another planet to take on the good dream team of Kirk, Spock, Abraham Lincoln, and Vulcan peace hero Serac. And yes, somehow this testing alien force is powerful enough to bring these characters from different eras all together onto a planet. Anyway, the teams are preparing for a fight that, if won by good, will save the Enterprise from destruction. When Spock and Serac make a proposal to Kirk. Spock, of course, played by Leonard Nimoy. Logic dictates that we consider another course. We don't have much time, Spock. In my time on Vulcan, we also faced these same alternatives. We'd suffered devastating wars which nearly destroyed our planet. Another was about to begin. They were torn. But out of our suffering, some of us found the discipline to act. We sent emissaries to our opponents to propose peace. The first were killed, but others followed. Ultimately, we achieved peace, which has lasted since then. The circumstances were different then, sir. The face of war has never changed, Captain. Surely it is more logical to to heal than kill? I'm afraid that kind of logic doesn't apply here. That is precisely why we should not fight. My ship is at stake. I will not harm others, Captain. It is 
his convictions are most profound in this matter, Captain. So are mine, Spark. If I believed that there was a peaceful way out of this... The risk will be mine alone. If I fail, you lose nothing. After all, I'm no warrior. The captain knows that I have fought at his side before. And will do so now, if need be. However, I too am a Vulcan. Bred to peace. Let him attempt it. You saw how treacherously they acted. Oh, yes. But perhaps it's our belief in peace that is actually being tested. Hmm. I have no authority over you. You may do as you think best. Thank you. May you live long and prosper. The weapons, gentlemen, in case he fails. Your Surak is a brave man. Men of peace usually are, Captain. So it's kind of interesting that Kirk personifies a familiar American foreign policy approach, support diplomacy, but build weapons nonetheless. And yet it still seems extraordinary for that time on network television to even have what you might call the peace platform articulated so well, in this case by the Vulcan Sirach. Now in the end in this episode, Sirach is killed by the evil team, and later in the episode the remaining three good doers do battle with the evildoers. They do chase them off, and Kirk gets his ship back. I want to bring in Dr. Judith Barrett, philosophy professor at Indiana State University now. She's the co-author of The Ethics of Star Trek. Dr. Barrett, what's interesting to you about the big picture, the larger lessons here in this episode that we excerpted? You said the episode mirrors one of the great philosophic debates of all time. Tell me more about that. Well, there's two philosophical questions involved in that episode. One is is stated flat out, which is stronger, good or evil, and what's the difference between good and evil people? I think the episode shows us that evil seeks its own self-interest, which in a way makes it weaker than good. Uh, Good seeks to advance the interest of others. When you see evil, evil people form a group, they find it difficult to really accomplish much because each is still seeking their own self-interest. And give me a little bit more detail about the philosophic grounding of this that you wrote about in your book. Actually, this idea comes from Plato. Um, Plato was very concerned with what is the ideal society, what is justice. He talks about this in his greatest work, The Republic. And he imagines himself uh, in discussion, or he imagines Socrates in discussion with a man who doesn't really recognize morality, a guy named Thrasymachus, who takes up the view that might makes right. Such people often think that, that there's greater strength than evil, and they look up to this greater strength that they perceive in evil and seek, seek to promote uh, that view. Plato, on the other hand, sees evil as weakness, that evil doesn't have this unity. Um, Being so self-centered, it simply can't accomplish its goals, at least in Plato's view. And I think this is the view of Star Trek as well. Another interesting plot point in those original Star Trek stories and throughout the various incarnations is what's known as Starfleet Command's 
Prime Directive, which is uh, spelled out here in this episode clip as Spock, Kirk, and McCoy land on another planet. Uh, The episode is called Bread and Circuses. Jim, is there anything at all we know about this planet? The SS Beagle was the first ship to make a survey of the star sector when it disappeared. Then the Prime Directive is in full force, Captain? No identification of self-omission. No interference with the social development of said planet. No references to space or the fact that there are other worlds or more advanced civilizations. Let's go. Once, just once, I'd like to be able to land someplace and say, Behold, I am the Archangel Gabriel. I fail to see the humor in that situation, Doctor. Naturally. You could hardly claim to be an angel with those pointed ears, Mr. Spock. But say you landed someplace with a pitchfork. Then the landing party is captured, and they find that this planet's civilization has evolved in a troublesome way. It's like a 20th century Rome, with slaves used as gladiators in televised brutal games. Kirk and company wind up getting thrown into the arena, too. They struggle to maintain the prime directive of non-interference. In this episode, they manage to escape without much interference and let the planet evolve on its own. But in numerous other cases in this series and subsequent Star Trek series, that prime directive is broken over and over again. Dr. Barrett, as you do throughout your book, The Ethics of Star Trek, you measure the characters' actions against the great philosophic traditions, Plato, Aristotle, and others. And you write extensively about how breaking the prime directive reminds you of Aristotle's principle of equity. Tell me more about that. Yes. Uh, the prime directive is a general rule, uh, equivalent to one of our laws. Uh, but the law is only written to cover general situations of necessity. You can't uh, have foreknowledge of every exact situation that you'll find, come across. Life doesn't always follow general rules. So you need good judgment in, in exceptional cases, cases that don't fit the general rule. And you need the sort of judgment that strives for the, for the most fair, the most just solution. That's what Aristotle means by equity. And so in reference to the original series, then, this keeps happening over and over and over again. Yeah, they find situations that... The uh, captain feels obligated to interfere with. This is true. Um, You always get the idea that the original series characters think that the prime directive is a good rule. They don't want to overturn it. They don't seem unhappy with it. But they do recognize that sometimes any rule might need, for the sake of justice, might need to be abrogated. This impulse runs up against uh, the notion of cultural relativism, which you write about uh, in your book. Uh, Give us a short description of some of the basic claims of that theory. Okay. Cultural relativism claims that there are no universal rules, no universal moral rules, nor should there be universal moral rules. Whatever the majority of people in a culture thinks is right is right for that culture. And so you write that the original Star Trek series really does anything but embrace cultural relativism in the context of what we've been talking about. Yes. You know, cultural relativism could sound good. It leads to a hands-off policy in regard to other nations. It entails a lot of tolerance, um, and it could lead to peace. But the question comes up, could it be overly tolerant if consistently Um, adhered to. 
Do we want peace at any cost? You know, if the majority in a given culture is always right, as cultural relativism claims, then the price is conformity. And if conformity rules, then you have social stagnation, lack of social progress. Social reformers are always thought to be wrong. Not only would one nation be unable to criticize another nation if they're consistent cultural relativists, but the citizens within a given nation couldn't criticize the majority. So um, I think that has some unfortunate consequences, and I think that Star Trek recognizes this, that the Star Trek writers recognize that. Right, because cultural relativism also would imply tolerance for genocide. Exactly. Um, If cultural relativism were uh, always adhered to, nobody could criticize Hitler's Germany, what's occurring in Darfur. Um, You'd just have to say it's a unique culture, the majority approve, and the majority is always right. And David Gerald, you write a lot about the breaking of the Prime Directive and Kirk's meddling in other cultures in a section of your book. You say the series gave into the American Way Syndrome. Could you explain that a bit? Yeah. Um, the Prime Directive was started out as a plot point in one episode, and I don't remember what the first episode was in which it appeared, but it started out as a plot point, but one of Roddenberry's humanistic plot points of do we have the right to meddle? Do we have the right to interfere? And it's a question that needed to be asked, um, not on a, just on a Star Trek level, but even on an international level. Do we have the right to interfere? Well, um, over and over, the answer is whether or not we have the right, we have the responsibility when people are being hurt by our not interfering, our, our not taking action can sometimes be a much more disastrous course. And you could apply that to a lot of situations like Darfur, for example, or Somalia or Ethiopia or any of the disasters that have happened on the African continent because uh, of the lack of of existing structure for order. But sometimes, and I include myself, sometimes we get arrogant. We think we know what's right all around for other people. And uh, there's a certain arrogance in in saying, okay, we're going to interfere with your culture and, and make it better. Well, yeah, okay, but make it better by whose standards? Make it better under whose interpretation? Um, uh, well, for instance, democracy. You don't just walk into a nation, uh, overturn a dictator, and say, okay, now you people are all going to vote and you'll have a democracy. No, democracy occurs when people are trained, from even from the earliest age, to cooperate and take votes, and and you grow up with a recognition of uh, how democracy works. It's not something that you can force on people. It's only something you can teach people. And and so I worry sometimes that uh, what Star Trek created was a mindset that it's all right to meddle. Um, like, as I said in the world of Star Trek, like a cosmic Mary Worth meddling in other people's lives. If you're not invited to come in and fix things, maybe uh, you should not, um, or maybe at least you should be rational enough to find out the scale and the scope of the problem before you start doing things. Um, yeah, there were some there were some troubling endings, I thought, to some of the episodes where uh, Kirk and the crew did uh, meddle. Maybe they uh, destroyed a computer that set people free, uh, and the, because the episode was timing out pretty quickly. 
it sort of seemed like they were saying, well, we're beaming up now. You guys will figure it out. Uh, and then they take off. Yeah, that was Return of the Archons. I, I just know that they left that planet in total chaos. <laughs> of course, it's like they had to get out before the last commercial. See, I, but I think you, you, know, you need to acknowledge the total chaos that ensues when you, uh, when you make any major social change. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, the peace message in Star Trek. Back with our guests, David Gerald and Judith Barrett, and later, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura in the original series. All after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today we're exploring the classic television series Star Trek. With the May 2009 release of a Star Trek movie that serves as a prequel to the original series, featuring the characters Captain James Kirk, Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, and all the rest, it seemed like an opportune time to reflect back on the original series and revisit what it had to offer on topics of peace versus war, diversity, tolerance, and friendship. Our guests are science fiction writer David Gerald, author of The World of Star Trek, and philosophy professor Dr. Judith Barrett, co-author of The Ethics of Star Trek. And soon, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on the original series. Another interesting episode that muses on the horrors of war and how it ought to spur peacemaking is called A Taste of Armageddon. In this episode, Kirk's orders are to establish diplomatic relations with a planet. When they beam down to it, they learn that this planet has been in a computerized war for 500 years with a nearby planet. Strategic hits are theorized by the computers, and casualties are calculated. The victims have 24 hours to report to a disintegration station so that their deaths can be executed and recorded. The planet governments see this solution as tidy because it preserves the civilization despite the cost in lives. In the climax to the episode, Kirk and his crew disregard the Prime Directive, destroy the one planet's computer, leading to this final scene. Do you realize what you have done? Yes, I do. I've given you back the horrors of war. The Vendikins will now assume that you've broken your agreement and that you're preparing to wage real war with real weapons. They'll want to do the same. Only the next attack they launch will do a lot more than just count up numbers on a computer. They'll destroy your cities, devastate your planet. You, of course, will want to retaliate. If I were you, I'd start making bombs. Yes, Councilman, you have a real war on your hands. You can either wage it with real weapons, or you might consider 
an alternative. Put an end to it. Make peace. There can be no peace. Don't you see? We've admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. It's instinctive. It's the same with you. All right. It's instinctive. The instinct can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Knowing that we're not going to kill today. Contact Vendikar. I think you'll find that they're just as terrified, appalled, horrified as you are. That they'll do anything to avoid the alternative I've given you. Peace or utter destruction. It's up to you. There may be a chance. We have a direct channel with Vendikar's high council. It hasn't been used in centuries. And it's long overdue. Shall we go? David Gerald, you write that this Taste of Armageddon episode was one of the better ones, you thought. What do you like about this in the context of our conversation today? Well, what I like about A Taste of Armageddon is that great speech that Kirk gives at the end, in which I have often said, I mean, it's become a personal mantra, okay, yes, I'm descended from killer apes, but today I'm not going to kill. I think what that speech represents is the rationality of of a self-aware, self-actualized being taking responsibility for the evolutionary um, heritage. Uh, you know, we all have these little reptilian corte- cortexes at the base of our skull that, you know, we just, you know, our hands curl up into fists and we just want to punch that person in the face for being such a terrible person in our judgment. But Kirk is saying, no, we're, we don't do that because we respect rationality. We respect, we understand that people have different views, different opinions, and it's time that we learn to respect each other and, and uh, uh, listen to each other and learn from each other and that we don't have to fight. Uh, and he says it all in two sentences, and I think that the script writing in that was probably, uh, you know, I don't know who wrote that exact speech, but whoever it was, I, I you know, that was the reason they were put here on this earth. Billions of people have seen that episode now and have heard that line, and, and if it has impacted even a small percentage of them, that's still millions and millions of people who think, and today I'm not going to kill. This is good news. <laughs> Dr. Barrett, you write also about the role that friendship plays in the appeal of Star Trek and its roots in philosophy. Uh, Explain what you mean by friendship of the good and how the relationship between Spock and Kirk and maybe Dr. McCoy is uh, an example of it. Yes, this is a a category of friendship that Aristotle distinguished in the Nicomachean Ethics. The friendship of the good is essentially a friendship between two good, virtuous people— people who have worked on their characters so that they have developed many virtues. They see these virtues in another or, or different virtues in another, and, and uh, one virtuous person is attracted to another virtuous person. They can talk together on the same level. Um, they see each other as another aspect of their own self. And because such it takes a while to develop a virtuous character. These friendships last a long time. And I think we see it most clearly in 
Kirk and Spock, who are always looking out for each other's welfare and are even willing to sacrifice themselves for each other. I I believe that uh, the Kirk-Spock-McCoy triangle is an archetype that uh, for television that uh, I think Star Trek stumbled into it. I don't think it was planned. And simply, if you look at the history of how the show evolved, it wasn't planned because McCoy wasn't there at the beginning and Spock was only a very minor character at the beginning. But as the show evolved, you see the relationship starting to fall into place that Spock presents logic, uh, McCoy represents the heart, the emotional uh, uh, element of being human, and Kirk is the decider. Uh, he's the person who chooses the cor- the appropriate course of action based on heart versus mind. It also proves another thing: absolute power corrupts absolutely. Darn clever these Earthmen, when you say yes. Earthmen like Ramses, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler. Lee Kwan, your whole Earth history is made up of men seeking absolute power. Uh, Spock, you obviously don't... Obviously, Doctor, you failed to accept... Gentlemen, gentlemen, we've just been through one civil war. Let's not start another. Check off, take us out of orbit, warp factor two, and hurry. And the two are always in conflict. Emotion and logic are always in conflict. And you, action has to understand that both are valid uh, and, and, and responsible ways of acting. Overall, David, you say that Star Trek's interesting failures outnumber its successes, but they still manage to inspire us. Uh, how so? And, and how so in light of this conversation we're having about peacemaking and conflict resolution? What do you think can be drawn from contact with Star Trek? I think Star Trek had maybe eight or ten brilliant episodes. And then they had a whole bunch of pretty good ones. And then they had a lot of ambitious episodes that simply you walked away saying, what the heck were they trying to do there? Or that just didn't work. But I think the the ambition needs to be acknowledged because even the the interesting failure says, look, at least we're trying to talk about this subject, raise it to the level of consciousness, deal with it, get people to start considering what this is all about. To me, that's what a television show should do. It should, you know, I mean, most television is about keeping you in front of the TV screen long enough so someone else can tell you you smell bad and should buy something. But uh, Star Trek was not about the commercials. It was about when the show's over, we want you to have a good old-fashioned argument about this, about this subject, about this dilemma. For more about our guests, David Gerald and Dr. Judith Barrett from Indiana State University and their books, The World of Star Trek and The Ethics of Star Trek, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Right now, we're happy to have with us actor, writer, producer, singer, Nichelle Nichols, who portrayed communications officer Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek series. She's talking to us from her home near Los Angeles. Nichelle, thanks for making time for us today. It's my pleasure to be with you, Paul. Thank you. We've been talking on our program with Star Trek writer David Gerald, who I think you know, and author Judith Barrett, who wrote a book called The Ethics of Star Trek about how many Star Trek scripts were actually quite thought-provoking meditations on war and peace and uh, tolerance, compassion, friendship. My question to you, to start, 
as a young actor, you were about 33 when Star Trek premiered. Were you personally aware at the time that the series was tackling these these big issues? I became much more aware as um, each script came down. I always read the scripts because I always wanted to know how I fit in. Not ju- It wasn't just my lines or, um, or my scenes. As I would get scripts, each script, I realized more and more that this was not just an entertainment show and most assuredly not a kiddie show. I also was always aware uh, of, of who Gene Roddenberry was as a futurist. He was never preaching, and that is the thing that he was so adamant about. Don't tell them. Let them see. After about the sixth episode or well into the first season, I finally went into Gene's office and he was sitting behind his big desk, and I walked over and stood in front of him and sat across that desk, and I said, Gene Roddenberry, I said, I know what you are doing with your scripts. You are making people's minds think. And he looked up at me, and he, said, and he put his finger to his lips and said, Shh, <laughs> they, they haven't, front office hasn't figured that out yet. <laughs> you had thought about leaving the series after the first season, but you had a chance encounter with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at an event, and he talked you out of it. Is that right? Absolutely. What did he say? Uh, you have to go back to my even going into the show. I was uh, raised in musical theater. That was my true love and still, still really is. Uh, after I got the role... Uh, I was delighted, but I only thought of it as an adjunct and and an addition to my resume. So I went into Gene on a Friday night uh, at the end of the first season and told him that I was leaving the show. And he was devastated. He looked at me like I'd just grown two heads and gone crazy. And he said, take the weekend and think about this, Nichelle. Don't you see what I'm trying to do here? This is important. But I was determined to leave, and the next night on a Saturday night, I realized that I was invited to an NAACP fundraiser. And when I got there, one of the organizers told me there was somebody who wanted to meet me, and they were a number, my number one fan. And so I turned around, and there stood Dr. Martin Luther King. And he smiled and, and said, I am indeed, the fan. I laughed and we got to talking and he said it was the only show that he and his wife Coretta King allowed their little children to stay up and and see and he was being so um, complimentary and I said, well, thank you so much, Dr. King, and I'm really going to miss my co-stars. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm leaving the show. I've just told Gene Roddenberry last night, I'm leaving the show after the first season. And this beautiful face just went glum on me, and he said, you cannot do that. And then he proceeded to explain to me that for the first time, people who don't look like us will see us as we should be seen that I had created a character 
with strength and intelligence and beauty and competence, and, and I could not leave at this point in time. And he said, Nichelle, this is what we are marching for. You hold a picture, an image, and the images on television are very powerful. And Jean has given him an image of what the future is and can be and will be. You cannot leave now. And then he said, when he said, don't you see what he's trying to do? It just hit me in the face that that was exactly said what Jean had said. He was, don't you see what I'm trying to, to achieve? And he said, um, this is what we are marching for, and this is what many of us are willing to die for. And he, he became like my mentor after that. He didn't just indict me that one night and leave it at that. He would call, call my home or call the set at certain times and tell me what advancements we had made and what, what was going on. And before he went uh, to make the speech at Washington, and he said, I wish you could be there, but I want you to st- stand uh, strong. And uh, I did not leave. And from that moment on, I couldn't think of anything else all that weekend. And I went back to Gene and I told him if he still wanted, I told him what happened. And I told him if he wanted me to, um, to stay, I would be glad to. And then a week after Star Trek's second season concluded, Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, where were you when you heard that news? I was on my way back from Canada. We'd had a break from season two to three. I just arrived in, in L.A., and I heard it on the way home. And I, I just, I was frozen. I couldn't cry. I couldn't scream. I couldn't, I, I, I was frozen because it was, it did not feel real. And I knew what Dr. King meant. And I knew what he meant. Now, when I watch reruns of the original series and I see a group shot of the crew, um, I mean the whole crew, you know, like a larger uh, shot of the crew. Like there's one episode, one of your favorites I understand, when Captain Kirk is presumed dead and Spock is leading a memorial. Yes. You look at that group in the episode and there's every skin color on earth reflected in the crew. There's Indians, Asians, African Americans like yourself. And yes. Again, I, I, was there an awareness of that being extraordinary for that time in 1967, 68? It was so dynamic People tell me to this day what happened to them when they looked up on that screen and saw us. People said, I looked at you and saw myself. And sometime that person speaking was a grown-up person who was nine years old when she saw that show and went screaming through the house uh, come quick, come quick, there's a black lady on television and she ain't no maid. And the little girl who ran through the house grew, grew up to be Whoopi Goldberg. She said, I knew that I could be anything I wanted to be when I saw Nichelle Nichols on, on television, when I saw Lieutenant Uhura, because that was the future. During this program, we've been playing clips from some of the episodes, and there's a scene with you in an episode called The Savage Curtain 
that uh, we referenced earlier in our program. Mm -hmm. Uh, In it, uh, a being who appears to be Abraham Lincoln to everyone on the Enterprise is surprised to see you on the bridge. Yes. Excuse me, Captain Kirk. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott. What a charming negress. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time, some use that term as a description of property. But why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura? The foolishness of my century had me apologizing where no offense was given. We've each learned to be delighted with what we are. The Vulcans learned that centuries before we did. It is basic to the Vulcan philosophy, sir. The combination of a number of things to make existence worthwhile. Amidst the real-world turmoil of that time that you were just describing, uh, when you're delivering those lines, uh, did you believe that this multicultural acceptance would be in America or Earth's future? I think that was a 1969 episode. I always believed it. Even when I was a little girl, I was fortunate enough to be raised by um, a father and mother who taught me I could be anything that I wanted to be. If you can dream it, you can do it. And I've heard you say in interviews plainly that you believe that Star Trek changed the world. Star Trek changed the world. That, that, that vision was in Gene Roddenberry's mind. Do you ever have skeptics challenge you on that? Like, Nichelle, really, did it change the world? Uh, n- no, because the millions of people whose life it did change, who said, I thought I was supposed to live this kind of life, as as a Caucasian, I thought I was supposed to live this kind of life uh, as uh, an African American. I thought I was supposed to live this kind of life as a girl. It changed their lives because they saw themselves differently. Nichelle Nichols, I, I'm trying to resist the temptation to say live long and prosper, but you know that's what I'm thinking. And I really thank you for spending time with us today. Oh, Paul, I say it as often as I can. I'll say it again to you, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so very much. Live long and prosper. I should mention that all 79 original Star Trek episodes can now be viewed online. And for a link to those episodes, as well as to links to full-length interviews with all of our guests today, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also order CDs, sign up for a podcast and a monthly newsletter. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio and keeps talk of peacemaking alive on the air and on the web. If you like today's program, please go online and do your part to help support it and others to come. We also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Special thanks this time to Dave Taylor at Indiana State University. Our theme was written and performed by Allie Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.